No, I mean, architecture is political. We gotta, we gotta add that stuff. Indeed. We're tearing down communities to build multifamily and you have to understand we are creating displacement. You're displacing black and brown folks and they don't come back. Half of this podcast would be dedicated to the history of Tyler House my journey and my discoveries and hey i'm gonna solve this housing problem hey guys what's up my name is melissa daniels this is the architecturalist political podcast where black and brown folks talk about architecture i hope you enjoyed this podcast and be part of my storytelling you know how long i've been wanting to talk to adam Last year, I had reached out to him on Instagram and life happened so rapidly for him. Finally, I think like, I didn't even count the months. I, I want to say it's like eight months later. I want to say eight months, Adam, eight months, but it's well worth it. You don't understand. Like this conversation is really enriched and you really hear his thought process and his passion for what he does with Segregated by Design. I thoroughly enjoy talking to people who are passionate about things. And Adam is passionate about his research. In the beginning, he talked a little bit and then we got a little debate about cars. And I thought about taking it out because I didn't, I always have this debate whether I should just let the person speak like I ask a question and then they talk or just insert as much of the conversation as so what you hear is mostly what we talked about that you know that's recorded anyway it's a debate because the majority of you will side with with Adam I feel that my reasoning didn't really come out as clearly as I wanted it to come out and I didn't want to add myself or thoughts into the total conversation so what you hear is what you hear so the debate on cars and my stance is that there's a war on cars right now every social media outlet that I'm on I hear people talk about how cars are bad and you need to walk or bike and I'm not against that at all. Like you live in a city like DC. DC is a walkable city. DC is a bikeable city. You should use public transportation. But public transportation in DC, the metro, it's horrible. It sucks. Like you waiting 20 minutes for a train and you couldn't walk there by now. I, I am a thousand percent on board with, with walking and biking and and reducing the pollution that is cars. But I am, I'm always skeptical of when a certain demographic say that we should get rid of cars. And I, I pause for a second, I think about how does black and brown people use cars? Because at some point in time, public transportation was deemed as only poor people black and brown people use public transportation and you know for the same reasons why there's no metro in georgetown because they don't want those people to to be in that area and i guess that always stuck by me growing up in dc there's a dc history class you got to take in high school and i had a cool ass dc history teacher who taught a lot of stuff talk about the black history of, of dc I, I plum forgot about most of it, but the thing that stuck with me was just Georgetown and how they fought 
against having a metro station down there. So you have to get off at Foggy Bottom and walk. And it's a good walk. And now they're like kicking themselves because they want a system there. I am skeptical with cars being eliminated in cities and how the cities themselves are penalizing you for having a car, whether you park the car and you didn't read the sign because the signs are meant to be confusing. Like I remember watching that parking show, that, that reality parking show in Philly, Parking Wars. I forgot the name of it. Anyway, it always infuriated me because of the whole process. You need a PhD to read parking signs. But I just feel it penalizes black and brown people more for just simply having a car. But yet you don't want us to live in the city also because we can't afford it. So, you know, this is this was my mindset in, in talking to Adam about it. And he is a thousand percent right in what he said. And, you know, it's me. So I think I'm right, too. So just listen to it, guys. Like I said, I think my listeners is going to side with Adam versus me. And I say that because I haven't in that debate or that conversation, I didn't really formulate my thoughts and really hit it with hard data because it's a feeling. Oh, yeah. So listen to that part. Take it with a grain of salt. It's a conversation between Adam and I and if you want to DM me on IG and you're like, you know, Melissa, you were absolutely wrong. You can state your case in, in my DMs. Again, it's all about love. Let's see what else. A lot has happened in the real world. And I thought about doing a separate podcast, just talking about it and just me talking. I haven't done that in a long time, but I have to put it out there when it's fresh in people's minds. When I talked to Adam, that's when the Buffalo Massacre happened. I thought that maybe we should talk about it and how it related to segregated by design. And that supermarket is, it being closed was now like a food desert. Black people access to food. When you eliminate that food desert, we have to travel. Twitter, I'm a briefly mentioned this. Someone on Twitter proposed eliminating Heckinger Mall to put up affordable housing quote-unquote affordable housing oh no or something similar like union market and that just got me hot because I remember again I'm a DC girl so I remember when Hecker Jamal was like the Home Depot you know Heckinger's was the Home Depot and just going there and getting, like, my mom would take me and getting, you know, just, I don't know, paint. I don't, I can't remember what she got there for. Or, like, the grocery store. Safeway has always been, was it always Safeway? I think it was always Safeway. Was 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 always there. I remember Payless Shoes. I remember, like, the $10 store. Okay, it's like the Rainbows. It's that, it's a mall, but it's an outdoor type mall thing. It's not indoor more. It's an outdoor mall thing. And so when I saw this guy proposing to eliminate this area, and it has a lot of surface parking, again, like, here we go with the parking. Yeah, and I agree, it does have a lot of surface parking. And to build on it and just revamp that. And I got hot. And let me tell you why I got hot. I got hot because, A, that's the last resemblance of blackness. That whole mall is black. He's proposing to turn into Union Market. I've been to Union Market a whole bunch of times. And recently, the owner decided that kids could not be there anymore. Like the, the, the middle or high school kids are allowed there without a parent. And so what he meant was that the black and brown kids which 
is around there could not frequent there without parents. I remember getting kicked out of places because we were too loud or, you know, someone may have stole something or they may be harassing people. But that's what kids do. Like, I, I didn't harass people, but I was in that group of that people that would harass. But anyway, the, that that reminded me of that, the policing of black and brown bodies. You're not allowed here. Here's some restrictions only for you, right? So that that reminded me of that when I saw that tweet. And I just liked what other people had said that had similar feelings for me. I didn't put my two cents in. That's why I have a podcast because I could put my two cents in. So yeah, so I'm gonna end. I've been, oh wow, I'm, I've been talking for a while. It's been a while, guys. It's been a while since I talked to you. So I'm going to stop talking and let Adam talk. <laughs> okay. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Adam. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You want to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Adam Paul Susnick. I work in architecture. I'm based in New York City. I run the account Segregation by Design on Instagram and Twitter. Um, hoping to maybe make a book or publish eventually. I have the site as well. And I am here to talk about the history of American cities. You are really passionate about what you post. What do you want to talk about first? I'll I'll just start with the motivation because that's what everyone's always interested in, especially because I'm a cis hetero white dude. Well, I mean, I want to be upfront about that because I recognize that I personally have benefited from the exact things that I'm talking about, uh, you know, in terms of generational wealth and knowledge and memory. But yeah, I mean, my motivation is, well, A, having studied architecture and having been interested in city planning, but it, but specifically having studied architecture, it gave me the tools and the language and the, the skills to really analyze the built environment critically. And the more I did that in American cities, the more I was like, what the hell is going on here? I, I knew redlining and I knew the effects theoretically. And then I read Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, which is you know, everyone should read that. It basically inspired this project because it it really summed up a lot of things very succinctly. And I think that's what's so fantastic about that book is it's very much like a compendium. It's it's short though of, of just segregation tactics. But what I found frustrating as an architect is uh, there's not enough pictures. There's, there's not any pictures. <laughs> you know, I'm a very, very visual person and what he's talking about is so visual. And it's the same with the power broker. I'm not going to, you know, pretty much everyone listening to this podcast is going to know about the power broker. Here's a trick. You don't have to read it consecutive. You know, you can find what I do is I just go in, okay, I need to talk about the Cross Bronx. I'll just go in there. I'm trying to learn about the built history of New York. I don't necessarily need to know about Robert Moses's swim team experiences. I love Robert Carroll, but he's a little um, encyclopedic, which is a virtue. I've probably read 60% of that book. I haven't read the whole thing. But, But even in that book, there's only like a couple pictures. I just wanted to sort of potentially add to the understanding through pictures because it's how we how a lot of us learn. I like a good meme that also conveys a lot of information because I think there's a use in, in ease of digestibility um, of the information because a lot of it is so like arcane. Another motivation, in, in addition to sort of just wanting pictures, I used to give this answer as a joke, but I was trying to figure out, I'm a trained nerd. I think that comes across in the Instagram sometimes. I wanted to figure out where the streetcars went, you know, the trolleys, because I know every American city used to have streetcars and it's somewhat alive in the collective memory. Like, the trolley problem and the streetcar named desire, but like they're mostly gone. And I used to say that as a joke, like I was trying to figure out where they went. And it turns out, you know, the farther you look down into it, it's because of a 
divestment in cities for racial reasons. But I realized, I read then Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us, which is excellent if you haven't read. So she uses in, so the central metaphor of her book is the public swimming pool. During the New Deal, the federal government funded the construction of public swimming pools in basically every city of, of a certain size as part of the WPA. And this was when public meant like Beaux-Arts, like Grand, like New York Public Library, public. And so yeah, there were these big, beautiful structures, but they were, they were whites only, you know, they were segregated. And this was the 30s. So then the 50s come around and when desegregation comes down from the courts, rather than integrate the pools, many of the cities, they specifically say this is because they don't want to integrate. They drain them, they demolish them, they're gone. You subsequently see a rise in pools, in backyards, in private homes. And so in that instance, a public good is privatized. And, and ultimately, it was an anti-Black measure. But who loses is everybody, because we lose everybody with the, but the rich who can afford a, a, a pool in their house. And that's what happened with the streetcars. You know, that was a public good, mobility. I mean, it was a private company, but it provided a public good to everybody. You know, you think about who can drive a car. Sorry, well, that's a different issue, but they demit a public good, the transportation system, and so you have to go buy a car, is what they said. Oh, you had a trolley that came every five minutes? Now here's a bus, comes every hour. I didn't know about the pool situation. I knew about segregation, but I didn't know that it brought the rise of the backyard pool. Well, especially in the North, because it, in Southern cities, it was kind of a trend, the above ground thing. But no, it's public pools. That was a big part of America, but they're just gone now. And back to the point of, of transportation, in particular, the trams, the streetcars, who can ride a streetcar? A lot of them are segregated, yes. Although in many northern cities, they get desegregated. In New York, they were, the omnibuses were desegregated in, I think, 1868. I forget the woman's name. And, and, and absolutely discriminated against. But the fact of the matter is, everyone can use the streetcars. Who can drive? You know, sober adults between the ages of like 16 and like 70. I'm glad you mentioned this. Hear me out here is my perspective. So now there's a war on cars, right? Like I've seen on Twitter, especially. That, that podcast actually just reached out to me yesterday. So I love them. Oh, there's one. Other. Okay. All right. Have you, have you listened to Arrested Mobility? No. You should listen to that. That's really, that's really good. I really enjoy his perspective. Anyway, here's my thing. The war on cars and how we need to eliminate this desire for cars, zoning that requires so many spaces and you could build on parking lots. Exactly. I get that. But now that cars are accessible, now everybody has a car. Anybody could get a car through car loans or used cars. It's plentiful of cars. Now there's a war on cars. Now that I can get a car, brown and black people could get cars. And People are using it to as a storage system, as a home, as a way to escape, to get out of their neighborhoods. Now it's like you're being penalized from, from traffic to, you know, regulations. You can't park here. You get tickets and so forth. When I go to D.C., parking is hell. So I'm just questioning people who are unhoused. Now they live in their car and now you're going to take away the car. So... I guess I would challenge the notion that anybody can get a car. You Sure, you can get a car loan, but then you're screwed over in a million different ways. Yeah, you can get a car, but I think a lot of people don't calculate how much that's going to cost you. It becomes a poverty tax because the gas costs the same for everybody. It's a very regressive form of tax. It, I, I mean, it really depends on the place. You really have to be specific about it because that argument is sometimes used in New York in bad faith to hobble the deployment of bus lanes and transit improvements, saying that it's it's 
people in poverty who are driving. In New York, that is not the case. They take transit. It's it's overwhelmingly white collar people who drive. It's it's that it's much more expensive. And you also have to live in a you know, the people who are driving are coming from the suburbs. But there's now this push. Go, people who can't afford to live in the city are now in the burbs. They're in my neighborhood. I'm in the burbs. The there are more and more black and brown people going out to the birds because they can't afford to live in the city. It's because of that, and there's no transportation. Transportation is skim in the burbs. So you either walk everywhere or you get a car. And if you have a job in the city, you have to wake up six o'clock in the morning to get to work. But that's because parking minimums have made it illegal to build the type of house, like literally illegal to build the type of housing in the place that the people want to live and work. You're forcing them to move to the suburbs because you didn't build enough housing. You know, or like it could be because of displacement. If you had a home and you're on public assistance, any time that public assistance could be like, listen, you can't live here anymore. And your voucher is only good in the suburbs. This whole thing all, this all depends, right? Like, but Why is the voucher only good in the suburbs? See, that's a political problem. You know what I mean? Like that's then you're forcing them to move to the suburbs. But because the because they didn't build the, enough the stuff house in- that only has like what less than 10 percent that allows vouchers, the, the other housing that you just built that has 97 percent market rate housing only has a few spots left and are very selective. Yeah, it is a government problem, but it's a problem that people are dealing with. You, you get just, what I mean? So, no, I know. And exactly, because you can't fault people who have to drive because because that we've built it. So you have to drive. What else are they going to do? Take, you know, it, it it's in a lot of places, there just isn't transit service. And in a lot of places, you just can't live in the city. You have to live in the suburbs. Like, that's a lot of the Bay Area that I'm very, I, I went to Berkeley undergrad. So I'm very familiar with the fact that, you know, people have been pushed from, SF to Oakland and then Oakland, like Oakland to Antioch and then Antioch now all the way over to like Stockton, you know, it's crazy, but they're not building enough housing. And I'm not like a, some of your listeners, I'm not like a market rate Gimby, you know, I think build a lot of housing and make it affordable housing, Yeah, you know, make it uh, yeah. 80% affordable or a hundred percent. It's ridiculous that we commodify housing. You know, that's, that's part of the crux of the issue is capitalism. And, and, and there's, and the fact that like we have to have vouchers because we have such regressive taxation because it's a whole host of issues that at this point, like we need some serious changes in politics and the built environment to, to, to make any change. So it's like, it's, you know, to the person who has to sleep in their car, I'm not going to fault them for that, but the government sure tries to, in a lot of places it's illegal to do that, which right. is hilarious. It's like, they want they force you to buy a car and they say, you're- and I mean, a car represents freedom. The car represents, when you don't have anything else, and the only thing that you can control is your car. It's the only sane thing you have. I mean, represents a, an economic unit of production. When you add up everyone buying one, it supports X, Y, and Z industry. Freedom. Come on. You know. Wait, what are you talking about? Listen, if you don't have anything else, you don't have. You can't control your home. You can't control your job. You know, it's it's. That's the oh, only- I know. That's true. It's just bleak that we've done it that way because oh, it's cert- yeah. it's it's not mobility. It's certainly not mobility because it's traffic. <laughs> it's just a tax. <laughs> you know, it's it's like you have to pay so like insurance. And then, you know, I, I, I love this. There's this podcast, a YouTuber I watch called City Nerd. He has this great thing about strodes. A strode is obviously a mix between a street and a road. So a street is like a place where human activity happens. You live on the street, you do Sesame Street, you know, like you do stuff, you know, your neighbors, like a street is where stuff happens. And then a road is for transportation. 
right? So a strode is what we have in America. It's those big, wide roads that have big old strip malls and car dealerships on either side and like Friday or Chili's, you know, Walmart. It's an abstract street kind of built for cars. And he talks about what he calls the indicator species. You're on a strode when, because he's saying it's a self-fulfilling or a self-sustaining ecosystem because this thing is built for cars. There's restaurants, sure, but a lot of the businesses are car dealerships. There's oil chain, there's Jiffy Loops, there's big old, like this one near near us, there's big old like top hat car washes. And then my favorite one was he's like, and then the, the ultimate thing, billboards for personal injury and auto injury attorneys. It's, I love it. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. It's like, this is like just a self-fulfilling piece of shit that we build, you know? And, and the point is like not to, provide a good life for people it's to sell gas and cars so 1930 there's the great depression right what pulls us out of the great depression is world war ii and the immense need for you know all the jobs it creates people know the story they're industrial manufacturing jobs it's ge it's kaiser shipyards it's boeing it's lockheed these are the companies that it's gm and ford jeep chrysler these are the companies that pulled us out of the depression because we needed planes and boats and jeeps and tanks. And when the war ends, suddenly the, the need for that dries up. The government wasn't exactly let, gonna let this engine fail. It did stutter for a bit. There was a, a dip right after the war, but with the 49 Housing Act and with the 56 Federal Highway Act, they basically give cities carte blanche to rebuild for cars, rebuild with uh, the automobile in mind because it's frank it wasn't that difficult for these industries to retool from making jeeps to making personal cars or for making you know heavy equipment to making a refrigerator um, and suburbanization to some extent was just a need we needed to consumerize the economy we needed to go from selling stuff to the military because we no longer needed that we, we no longer needed that we needed to go to selling stuff to us we needed to become a consumer economy and to the way they chose to do it was, you know, with with the modernist principles of the time and the, the automobile and the faith in technology, et cetera. They chose, they went in all in on the newest fad, the cars, because it did. It represented freedom because it's a simple idea to wrap your head around. It's like, yeah, it's a car. It can go anywhere. There's no tracks. I get it. But if everyone has one, it's like, it's a geometry problem. It's like, it doesn't work. And then they obviously weren't even thinking about the environment. You know, I guess, I don't know if they viewed diesel as more futuristic than, than electric, but, but so the point I'm trying to make there was that this drive to suburbanize was also to some extent a capitalistic endeavor to keep the American economy going. Does that make sense? Yes. I know I mentioned earlier about your architecture education. Yes. There are folks out there who are in school and aren't being taught this or have to learn this on their own. How was your education? Try to be too negative. I mean, look, did we talk about these issues? No, I'm not going to say we did in any official capacity. The field uh, architecture as I was taught it. So I did poli-sci undergrad. I don't know if I got much out of that, although go bears, I love Berkeley, but you know, that was just my own, but regardless. And then I, I worked on, or I, I was a field organizer on the Obama campaign. I did politics before I got into architecture. So I, I politics, it was, I was a low level campaign staffer, but you know, I was really interested in it. I, I did a master's at Columbia in architecture. You know, I developed a portfolio and was able to get in, which was really cool. Very expensive. I would recommend 
if you want to go to architecture school, I would look at Europe. A TU Delft is great. ETH Zurich. They're, they're expensive, but they're much less expensive than American schools. Better education there too. Yeah, there's UNAM. I'm not saying that right, but the Autonomous University of Mexico in Mexico City, beautiful campus, fantastic architecture school. Obviously, it's Mexico City and really cheap. So, but whereas Columbia was very, 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 very expensive. Jeez, you know, and I have a prize, like a prize from them, like an incubator prize. And it's like, whatever, I consider it a rebate, you know, seriously, like I'm going to be paying them for the next 15 years. Oh my God. It's ridiculous, you know, but whatever. But yeah, to the point of whether or not any of this was talked about or, or what I'm interested in, no, not really. We really don't discuss history. What was great, I, I mean, it seriously, it did give me the skills to like really critically, like I wouldn't trade what I learned in architecture school for anything. I mean, well, I don't know. I you think you should have went in urban planning instead? No, no, I don't because I don't think they should be separate fields. And I think the way that I did my architecture, you know, what was great about it was that, you know, they're very flexible and you can basically reject any prompt as long as you do it thoughtfully. And that was cool. So I was able to always focus on what I wanted to, you know, which for me at the time was mostly transportation projects. You know, I did a lot of train stations, which is fun. And just someday I do want to, I'm not licensed yet, but I'm getting my, you know, I'm logging my hours so many exams. Maybe I'll do it. I don't know. But but yeah, no, I mean, it gave me, I said I wouldn't trade it for anything. I don't know if that's true because I might trade it for my student debt. That's the one-to-one. But no, I mean, it was a great experience because seriously, no, it, it, oh, right. And they had two joint architecture and urban planning studios and I took both those. So I was able to like tailor it to what I wanted to some extent because I didn't, you know, it's, I don't necessarily, I didn't necessarily know what I wanted at the time, but no, I think seriously, architecture gives you the ability to understand space in a really personal and intimate level that I'm not sure if city planning does. But again, I don't think they should be separate fields. Like I think that to some extent, I think it's like a spectrum, you know, architecture is almost like a spectrum from like the scale of the body, furniture, up to the scale of the building, the block, up to the city, the region, then regional transportation. But I think architecture by starting at those smaller scales, make sure you don't neglect them. Like people like Corb, and, and the city plan, I mean, I, I Corb claimed he was an architect, but whatever. But, you know, the city, I think that's a problem in the city planning field, too, is they don't think about the small scale enough, and they end up, and we end up with what we end up with. So, A, I don't think this, they should be separate. But I think really, like, the specific skills that architecture teaches you, the ability to draw a thing, like a 3D thing, the mm-hmm. ability to conceive of how you would think of that in 2D space, is really useful for a lot of reasons. <laughs> it helps me make my before and after things because I know how to draw something spatially to communicate in 2D because that's, and that's so useful because we do communicate visually in 2D so much with mm-hmm. screens because we do have a fetishistic, artistic, I'm not saying that in a pejorative way. I'm saying that in, if that's all that's taught, then that's bad. But we want our stuff to be beautiful. And I guess I think that there's beauty and clarity of, of communication. Maybe some architects think otherwise. Architect, like a good diagram. That's what I'm trying to get at. Like a good architecture diagram is a beautiful thing. I'm trying to communicate the most amount of information with uh, the simplest amount of visual. So that's my positive thing about architecture education. There you go. And I'm not talking about like hand drafting. I suck at hand drawing. Everyone always asks, can you draw? It's like, no, but I can use Rhino pretty well. <laughs> what I found a little frustrating was, well, this isn't positive, but what I found a little frustrating was just, <laughs> yeah, there was more focus on architecture as object rather than as like a part of a city. The city planning 
department, I would assume, does great work, but we don't ever talk to them. It's very frustrating, I think, that the fields are so separate. Um, and I think that's relatively recent. I Architectural theorists would know more about this. We got kind of sheepish after urban renewal because they did such a bad job that architects are kind of afraid. Well, that's not so true anymore because now it's kind of urban renewal is kind of coming back with us just coming back. <laughs> I don't know, like they're talking about this new plan for Penn Station where they're going to tear down a new a block south of Penn Station. It's like, oh yeah, great. That's a good idea. Um, sorry, that's just what they, it's like, oh, you're, you're going to fix Penn Station by tearing down more old stuff. Cool. One of it's, one of them's like a 1750s church or something. It's ridiculous. They like to tear down blocks. They like to just wipe everything out clean and build anew. Where do you think that came from? That's a really good question. I love that question. You know, I think actually there is like an answer that I can point you to. It might be a little outdated, but like I think Jane Jacobs, I know this is so cliche, but Jane Jacobs in her, have you read The Death and Life of Great American Cities? Not for a long time. Yeah, it's, I mean, because it's so, it's so intro, but it, and it's a little repetitive and, yeah. and but it's, it's a lot of it has its roots in a couple of different things. I mean, I'll start with Hausman is probably the most obvious is where the whole was where clearing the blocks came from. So Hausman's renovation of Paris in the 1840s, I think Napoleon the third, I forget the exact date. It was in the middle of the 18th century. No, middle of the 19th century. Sorry. Mid 1800s. Okay. Now I've spent way too much time on, on trying to get the date right. Okay. Hausmann's renovation of Hausmann's renovation of Paris. There's a couple of re- interpretations as to why he did this, but from a thousand foot perspective, it's where the, the boulevards came from. So Hausmann, I think, ended up tearing down basically like 60% of medieval Paris. The, the reason that Paris looks so architecturally uniform and I know there's going to be people who disagree with me on that, but from a whole, Paris is very architecturally uniform, is because most of the buildings were designed under, or many of the buildings were designed in the purview of this dude, George Hausman, Baron Hausman. Most people think his first name is Baron. That was his title. His title was George, or his name was George. But he was a city planner, kind of more of a bureaucrat, hired by Napoleon III, who was Napoleon's like nephew. He was the emperor of, of the French Empire, the Second Empire. Oh, yeah, I think that's where that phrase Second Empire comes from, because they had some taste. They did tear down that idea of like clearing whole blocks. A lot of it comes from him because he wanted to get rid of the medieval windy streets. There's there's different reasons for why people say, but there are there is a lot of evidence that it is it was a reaction to the French, the commune. So we already here are seeing the capitalistic origins of or the anti sort of anti-socialist, anti-social origins of these wide boulevards. Because during the commune, they were able to um, barricade the streets really easily and set up the commune within France. And he didn't want that to be able to happen. So they made really wide boulevards that were difficult to do that. Now, the fact of the matter is so wide that we can't like really appreciate them 130 years later, or 160 years later, because they're not as wide as our strodes. Like, but regardless, so that's one strain of where this sort of wholesale demolition comes from. So that Hausman, as the planner, making Paris, which became the city of light, it, it, it was a devastating transformation, but it, it, it was successful. You know, Paris rules. And he, you know, laid the foundation for making the subways possible by creating these rights of way. Now, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be glorifying that because it did displace a lot of people, but racial. It was just anti-poor, unfortunately, which you know, is racial in a lot of ways, but it was a different, but regardless, so Hausman, I'll stop talking about Hausman. That's one strain. 
So there's also the public health angle. Disease was, there were various diseases. There's a specific one that I can't remember that was that was spreading at the time. I think it was TB and, and another one. And they thought it was caused by, you know, germ theory wasn't fully developed yet. So they thought that disease was caused by bad air and people living too close together, which it to some extent is, but they're kind of not getting at the reasons, right? So this idea of clearing out the whole block That'll make it cleaner. We'll demolish the whole thing. For, it's for sanitation reasons. You know, Corpus, so there's that public health part. Because again, there were various plagues. They were always urban. There's, you should look into this guy, Jon Snow. Same name as the guy from Game of Thrones. But he was the, is considered one of the first epidemiologists. So he, but he was also to some extent like an urban analyst. He was in uh, London. And there was a big outbreak of like diphtheria or something. I forget. But he just went around. London and found out where people got their water from and then compared that to where the outbreak was and found it was just, it was near wells where they had like open septic systems. So the water had been compromised. That resulted in a lot of public health measures. I guess that wasn't so relevant, but it's just to say that some things that seem obvious to us now aren't um, like, don't poop in the water. It's not that complicated. But so there's the public health reasons. And then that gets kind of combined almost with people like Corb and, and like kind of Buckminster Fuller and the high modernists is what they're called. The they because they talk a lot about sanitation, especially Corb. He's creep. He has all these weird exercise videos, you know. So it's it becomes kind of like a combination of the two of of this grandiose central government planning, and then with this veneer of like public health, if that makes sense. And, you know, Corb was basically was a fascist. So I think he loved these ideas, like his plan was in, well, I can't pronounce it, but for central Paris, where they would tear down all of the central Paris, everything, and replace it with basically cruciform high-rise projects surrounded with parking or with parks, with highways running through the middle. I think they loved that idea because fascists don't like diversity. And in the city, well, that was kind of a logical jump there. But, but you know, the center city and the block represents something that, some people hate, you know, that the people living together and learning together. And, you know, you talk, you were talking in the one with Laura Foote about the, the salad. It's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe the melting pot was a bad example because it implies like becoming something different rather than being ourselves with each other. But that's what they don't like. I don't know. And, and the block is like a unit. I mean, to some extent, suburbs don't really have blocks. They have windy nothings. They have the Ebenezer Howard. They got rid of blocks. That's why for me, symbolically, I hate seeing structures that break the grid. You always see it in convention centers in the middle of American cities, like these big convention centers that like break the grid. They combined multiple grid lots. So the point of the grid was everyone in a non-hierarchical fashion and a fact that was easy to understand and travel. It's not just philosophical. It also works, you know, but versus a radial Paris, which is all radial around the Louvre, like a radial, I think represents a much more, I'm just talking kind of idealistically about city form, but a radial like Tokyo, like Paris represents a much more hierarchical system. Not that they are, well, Tokyo is, but you know, Paris has made a lot of, or France has made a lot of strides. They're obviously much more of a democracy than we are. The radial represents again, I think a hierarchy, whereas the grid, like Philadelphia, New York, a lot of, I mean, Come on, basically every American city has the downtown grid. It's democratic. And I think William Penn even wrote about that. It's about everyone has access, an equal spot on the grid. And you can have like bigger streets and that connects, that helps with everybody. In the middle, you put city hall, I guess. And that's what, and that's the, that represents the power of the people. But it's not like every street leads to city hall. Every street leads to other streets. Whereas the radial 
it all goes in. I, I wanted to start off with a quote. Originally, we had Whitney M. Young, but um, offline, we we talked about that. And you you have an, I don't want to say better quote. They're, they're similar. Here's a quote from Ta-Nehisi Coates. It is increasingly clear to me that white flight was not a mystical process for which we have no real explanation or understanding. White flight was a policy of our federal, state, and local government. That policy held that Americans should enjoy easy access to the cities via the automobile and live in suburbs without black people, who, by their very nature, degrade property and humanity. Yeah, I mean, it sort of touches on all of it. What I like about the quote is it starts with it is increasingly clear to me because it's because it's increasingly clear to me, too, as I do this project, because it's a process, right? It's an understanding because it's so systemic and complicated that it is a process of learning about. Again, it's I always talk about because it's federal, you know, it affects it affected every city of a certain size. The list is like 180. I, I mean, can you even name 180 cities in America? I could say Springfield 150 times, right? Like 180 different cities, right? Because it is treated mystical process because people are like, and then white flight happened. Oh, why did the whites flee the suburbs? Because they developed suddenly a taste for what suburban living. Okay, what? So they came back from the war and suddenly their whole preferences changed? That Maybe that could happen. Actually, that did happen in a lot of cases. But it was obviously incentivized. You know, the GI Bill didn't give people mortgages in the center city. It gave them mortgages in the suburbs. So what is that? And who was able to live in the suburbs because those suburbs had restrictive covenants. While the black soldiers and all branches and parts of the military, they were eligible for the, the GI Bill. They couldn't use it. They weren't allowed to go to these suburbs because they had the, the restrictive covenants, which say that in the deed, you know, that has it written in the deed. Uh, and I talk about this on the, on the account that the restrictive covenant writes into the deed that you can only sell this house to a, quote, member of the Caucasian race only. It's not a mystical process. That's what it is. It was policy. It was incentivization and, and policy. And the policy was, as he says, to change what the city was from a place where you live and work, where everyone lives and works to just sort of like a commercial hub for suburban commuters. You know, I think, and and this is what I see now that I'm just looking at these patterns in all these different cities, like Boston, for instance, they've ripped out the heart of it and, and put a highway through and a bunch of parking in a new city hall and a bunch of office buildings for, for, for workers surrounded by parking. They tore down the houses. They changed the use of the land. They changed the use from half and a half to 100% commercial. So that's like the second part of the quote. Suburban people should enjoy easy access to the city via the automobile because the automobile is a price to end. It's, 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 again, I don't think everyone, not everyone has access to an automobile and there's so many costs associated with it. So even if you do have access to an automobile, you, you can't always use it, you know, with the volatility of gas and all the maintenance associated with it. So there's that. It's, it's, there's the second part of, of easy access to the city center via the automobile. So I think that sort of encapsulates this idea that, again, the city center downtown um, and downtown neighborhoods, Boston is what I'm thinking of. Again, you know, the West End totally destroyed, most of Roxbury totally destroyed, well, not most of Roxbury, but the, the center of it in Dudley Square slash. And that's, you know, I have a post about that with the, the Dudley Street Baptist Church, but it was about changing. So again, first part of I like that quote is that it's not a mystical process, it's policy. And the policy was about changing the nature of what a city was of, of, of a city is now about commuting in to the car doing some stuff and getting the hell out and and then the third part of the quote is about how 
people of color, if you're not white, you degrade the property value. And that's the, the redlining. So the policy was to change the city into this different conception. And it was done on racial lines. And it was done, you know, that the reason we have to separate is because the inherent nature of not being white degrades value. And there's no further, like, that is it. That's what they say on the redlining, the official comments, there is just a checkbox, right? And one thing that people talk about, people say a lot is like, oh, it was mostly white people in the redlined areas. It's like, okay, it depends on the city. And what are we talking about when we're talking about white? Because the definition really changed. You know, Irish and Italians didn't used to be considered white. You know, Jews of, I'm Jewish. We, we've always been a bit on the fence, but I get to obviously enjoy, obviously, all the benefits of whiteness. And I, I don't want to go into that, but sorry. It, it, it's, yeah, the, the, the nature of what is white changed after World War II when um, they just drafted everyone except Black people. And that's when Irish and Italians just started becoming, they were just white now, it, you know, which before they just weren't. You know, it, I, we have a different, we had a different conception. It's so funny on these redlining sheets. Have you ever seen the show Community? You know, that asshole, what's his name? Chevy Chase. Yeah. That guy's a piece of shit. But, you know, apparently everyone hates, all, like Britta, Jillian, whatever her name is, like, she really hates him. He was apparently like a terror to work with. Not surprising. But hit, hit, remember the character who plays his dad? And he's like so racist. He doesn't even talk to Britta, the blonde girl, because she's like, you're a Swede. And that's what it is on these redlining sheets. If you're not a wasp, that's it. You know, you're redlined. So you look at these redlining maps and it's like, yeah, the whole city, like the, basically the whole island of Manhattan. It's like, what did you think was worth? What did you think was valuable? If not Manhattan, I, I don't, I don't get it. But sorry, why did I say that? Right. Because on these redlining sheets, the only place where there's like a like where it's just yes or no for a race is because everywhere else they have to like write it down. It's like there's and it gets really funny because mm -hmm. it's like they're like there's Lithuanians and it's like, you know, like how many Lithuanians even are there in the world? What do you have against Lithuanians? It's like it's so random. So that's why I like that quote, because it really just it, it has like, it's really good. Going to your Instagram account, what's the most common question people have asked you? That's also a good question. The most frustrating question is, where do you get satellite imagery from the 30s? It's like, okay, it was a camera mounted to the side of an airplane. It's not that complicated. And they pointed it down. I, it's I don't know an what aerial say. photograph. Yeah. And I guess because I colorize it, people get confused. All I did was add blue. But, you know, whatever. What's the most common question? I get asked a lot about, a lot about gentrification. But I know much less about that. And that's much more tied up in late stage capitalism. But I do get asked if what I'm talking about is gentrification. And actually, this is, a, this, this is the question I get asked a lot. Because people, like, people say, like, you're talking about gentrification. And I'm not. I'm talking about the, setting up the conditions that led for gentrification to happen in the first place. For instance, like Society Hill in Philadelphia. I mean, I should use an easier example. Williamsburg, gentrified, and the people got displaced. I'm kind of just spitballing here. Gentrification, to some extent, is the reverse that's been happening since the 80s, is, is people moving back into downtowns and then kicking out the people who were able to stay and survived that initial urban renewal wave. Like the South Bronx is a great example, because that's in Harlem, obviously, because they tore a lot of Harlem down. So they tear these places down and people and then sometimes provide project housing. But then the houses that they don't tear down become so much more valuable later because we then realize we shouldn't have torn them down, you know? And then that's when the people who were saved or were lucky enough to not have their stuff turned down, that's when gentrification, and that's the problem with gentrification because then, then when folks 
move back to the city and they're like, we're not obviously like, we're not gonna live in a NYCHA high rise. They want to live in these beautiful houses. And that's, and that's when the pressure goes in. And unless you have rent control, you, you're priced out. San Francisco is a perfect example of that. The, the, the Victorian houses were viewed as slums. The, the painted ladies were viewed as slums. It's just because, you know, they fell out of fashion for a little while, but now they're literally the symbol of the city. Most of Western edition was torn down, but some Western edition was a black neighborhood in San Francisco. It's pretty much not there anymore and it's been broken up into a lot of sub neighborhoods but a lot of it was torn it was it was victorians you know it was just vernacular houses that's what they built was these the victorians because that was their style in brooklyn and in the east coast they had the the brick style which is also gorgeous obviously and now you know on both coasts those those old row houses are beautiful and i was showing you the example in, in the netherlands they look similar it's like they're a similar scale and people love them there and they love them here now but the ones that didn't make it didn't make it and because those, that vernacular historic architecture was in the historic city, was in the center city where there were, where it was diverse. There were people of color because there were, there, were, there was everybody because that's where the jobs were. When they redlined these neighborhoods, gentrification is a different phenomenon. What I'm talking about is why we set it up such that there is this situation where we have undervalued lands in the middle of the city. We have this situation because it's people of color that live there. And we undervalue that through policy and through appraisals and blah, blah, blah. Gentrification is people coming back to those areas that we devalued for so long. But there were still people there and they still lived there. And they were homeowners or, or rent, long-time renters and trying to kick the people out because we're saying, we love these buildings, not you, get out. Whereas back in the day, it was, we don't want you and fuck those buildings. <laughs> you know? Do you think cities are a problem? with the highways and with everything. Do you think it's a, it's, it's a problem? Do you propose a solution to this trauma? And I think these cities were traumatized. To the a question of, do, you, do I think that cities are a problem? Cities are the only thing that will save us. A well-designed city is the most efficient way for humans to live. And efficiency is the worst thing I could have said. It is the most environmentally, because efficiency, the, 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 uh, the pursuit of efficiency has led to some pretty terrible things, but it is the most environmentally, if we do it right, you know, it's, it's how we can achieve the least carbon emissions while producing the most like happiness, you know, and, and, and there's endless, you know, obviously, and I'm going to, this is just cliche, but Copenhagen, Amsterdam, you know, they have their problems. Absolutely. But they're just on a different level than, so the American city is a problem. Yes. I would say every single American city, New York included, right now is undergoing a crisis in multiple forms. They're, every city right now is an, has an emergency. I mean, in the Bronx right now, we are spewing particulate matter on hundreds of thousands of people. One in five people, I think it's one in five, I have a graphic, uh, every census block in the Bronx is in the 99th percentile for asthma rates. Everyone. And yeah, there's confounding factors, but it's because you surrounded the community in a wall of highways. And, and, and you also got rid of all the electric streetcars and made everything diesel. You forced a car down every street. Every single city is undergoing, has a public health emergency right now that we're just like not doing anything about. Cars crashing into buildings. It's like, and on the news, it's like, oh, 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 it's so funny. One person was seriously injured. It's like, and okay, that person's life was ruined. Like American cities are a, a public health disaster every moment every minute, every day, including New York. They surrounded the island in highways. They cut Brooklyn and Queens in half with the BQE. Yeah. No, it, there's, there's the American, like Houston needs to be, they, everyone needs to stop 
and they need to take a moment and just make a plan fix it like it's i mean we can't do that under capitalism but it's 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 every every single city and 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 we're moving actively except for a couple places see i don't want to be a bummer but every place is moving in the wrong direction every single place except like rochester new york except like actually new york basically but like california they're they're i'll get back to new york because there are some good things happening there not the city the state california their most recent budget they they cut transit funding 8% increased highway funding 30%. California, Democrats in control of every chamber, every chamber. What? It, it's sorry, every American city, the, every single one, you know, and but so that sorry, where we oh, the positive ones, I'll say the positive. Rochester, New York had an orbital freeway around it that I can show you the images, but I'll try to describe it. You know, it was a typical Rochester dense downtown. Rochester has the brilliant distinction distinguished Mint distinction. Rochester, New York is the only city in the world to have had an electric subway system, a subway system, and to have abandoned it. Rochester had a subway and they abandoned it. Those things, you know, that we spend billions and billions of dollars and claim we want. You know, Cleveland has a different, they have, they started building a subway, but they never finished that. So that's different for the folks who know what I'm talking about. But so Rochester, dense downtown, dense enough to support a subway system, you know, back when those were private companies that needed to make a profit, dense downtown, and they tore it down for a highway. You know, they built an orbital highway and they tear, the befores and afters are really startling for Rochester. They basically flatten all of downtown and they build an orbital highway and they get rid of the subway. But recently they have demolished the orbital highway. And I want to make a distinction here between this project and something like the Big Dig, because the Big Dig, what they did was they buried the highway. In Rochester, they demolished it and they repaired the grid and they rebuilt housing, affordable housing. Specifically, I mean, there's not enough of it, but they built some. It's better than nothing. They repaired the grid and they put it back to what it was because that's what we need to do. It's not rocket science. It's like basic urban planning. You know, we've been doing it for a while. And then the other example, also New York State, is Syracuse, although I'm not as familiar. Wait, yeah, no, because Buffalo, Syracuse, they are tearing down their, they also have a highway that cuts right through and they're tearing that down. And they, their project is actually called the Community Grid because they're repairing the grid. And I love that. I love the focus on repairing the grid because that's what the highway does. It breaks the grid. And I told you earlier how. I... So those two are positive. You know, I would make, again, the distinction between the big dig because the big dig doubled down on that changing the paradigm. Like it's you, your downtown is still for a, a tunnel for cars and they still spill onto the street. And, you know, they built the deck. It's a deck. It's not actually a tunnel for parts of it. So you can't even like plant trees because the roots can't go that deep. Like it's a deck. That's a lame project, you know, and they didn't build the North-South connection. So American, like Rochester and Syracuse, those are good examples. Internationally, there's some great examples. That example in, because Paris is maybe not a great example, never really tore themselves down for the car, but they have been reclaiming space like that, that riverfront highway that I showed you. But then actually the, probably the best example is Seoul. Although now that I'm thinking about it, maybe Rochester is the best example. But, but Seoul is cool because Seoul, ha Seoul, South Korea, they had a big elevated highway that cut right through the middle of their city and everyone hated it. It was built over an old stream. And then the stream got so dirty because they built the highway that it basically became an open sewer. And this is a big, long highway. And so, and they, people hated it. And in the nineties, they tore it down, but they didn't just tear it down. They built, because people are always like, well, where, how are people going to get to work? Well, they built two subway lines along the same path or along parallel routes. So they made, they weren't, taking something away like that's what was cool about this project because a lot of the times drivers feel like you're like that we want to take something like i want to take something away but in seoul they they got rid of the highway but they replaced it with two lines and then they also now the the right of way is like 
the park. It's like the High Line. It's their High Line. It's like the place you go in Seoul. So it just worked on so many levels by just getting rid of the highway, not spending so much money to put all these crazy tunnels underground and, and building tunnels for private cars is just wildly inefficient. You build a tunnel, you put a train in it, Elon. But okay, so that's that's what I'll say. I'll... You have a Patreon. What does that help you do? With a lot of the, the aerial images are taken by private um, surveyors. So they're just not public. There's a site I use. I, I love them, but they are very expensive. The people who work there are super nice though, but it's it's called historicaerials.com. I encourage everyone to go to it. There's watermarks over it unless you buy it. It's a Google Earth time machine. It's only for the United States and, and the quality varies a lot. But, you know, your bigger cities and even a lot of smaller ones, you can just get, you can go to 1940 and just see what it was like. So high quality too. You can zoom and see the trams. I love that. You can see, it's like, you can see the city functioning, but they're not free because they were private surveyors. So, and a lot of them just aren't in the public domain. But so what this company has done is sort of bought the licenses for all of them and, and consolidated it. And then I can buy it from them. So that's what I use the Patreon money for because, and then also it, it's, they have different quality so i can get a good a photo of philly at 1600 by 1600 jpeg or pixels for 15 bucks that's not useful for what i'm doing i need like the full quality because you know you see how far i zoom in and those are 90 bucks so that's what the patreon helps me for and those base aerials basically become the the base for everything i mean if you look on the instagram it's what i overlay the transit maps onto it's what i because it is it's the before and after i mean it's it's that's what it was like I, it's it's truly awesome but it's you know that's where I, how i do those wipes is yeah those those wipes of the highway like showing the highway going all that is is two super high quality aerial images that i colorized and fixed up and removed clouds and whatnot but then there's just a wipe transition it's just a before and after and then i just zoom in and pan to make it look cool but that's all it is all of those is are, are those two images those are the, what i buy from historical aerial so that's how i do those graphics is i buy those 90 bucks and then do the colorization and then do the overlay and then that and again that, those aerials are where because i don't know i don't live in these places you know i can only live in one place you know i went to i, I know like the bay area and new york specifically well because of my personal experiences why these images are so useful and why it's because there's no lying this is just the image this is what happened this is just before and after it's not filtered through like i can eliminate any politics or any preconceived notion any narrative and that's very important any preconceived narrative because there's always a narrative about these projects in the local community that i don't know because i i mean i try to look into it obviously but going into it i don't know but what's awesome about these images is they don't these are just the city how it was over the years no interpretation nothing so that's and just when i colorize and look that's where i find i didn't know about eastwick until i was like what the hell is that neighborhood that just disappears when I add the 1981 layer, what happened there? It's really interesting. Mm. Sorry, but the Patreon is because they're expensive, and but they're the base, and they form like I pour over these for like hours because this is what is the base. And and if you see on the Instagram, I actually use those as like my almost like table of contents for what I'm going to post. Like I have a post that that is that aerial image, or is two of the aerial images showing the before and after with just like upcoming posts. Thank you so much, Adam. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This was so much fun. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me. This was, like I said, this was really fun. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Listeners, I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating this show 
and it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week. But it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I want to keep the show going and I want to invest in its growth. And I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week, and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespolly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.